is the latest edition of the Film Connection. My name is Gino Del Gorcio, filling in for Bill Ames. Today we have a very special program. We have a guest who is uh, probably the most influential person in rock and roll that you've never heard of. Bill Hanley, who's known as the father of live audio and uh, sometimes known as the uh, doctor of decibels. Thanks. Oh, Bill, nice to meet you. Nice meeting you, too. And along with Bill is John Kane. John Kane is a documentary filmmaker who is in the process of making a film about Bill Hanley. Correct. Nice. Welcome, John. Here. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Uh, all right. So, Bill, um, tell me a little bit about um, your history. Where, where, where did you start? I mean, what, how do you see yourself? Hmm, that's a good question. It's, it's a broad story. <laughs> I mean, do you really do you, do you think the title, um, the father of live audio, is um, correct? Well, it's more of the father of festival sound and as a, the father of the industry of going around the country to do special events. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you're. And audio events, and then it went into the music. Mm -hmm. Your most famous, or one of the most famous things you've done, it was you uh, mixed the sound for Woodstock, is that correct? I designed and laid the sound system out and the stage system out. In fact, you even picked the venue I had heard. I stopped Mr. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Lang and Max at the uh, site which I thought was most appropriate. First one we came to, as a matter of fact. Wow. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about Woodstock. How did that, how did that all come about? Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a long story. It's a long, yeah. well, it's a whole history of me providing the services for spe big special events, the audio services. Mm -hmm. Up until that time, most audio event, uh, most events had a local sound company who installed sound systems in churches and schools and factories do the sound. And uh, they used to make a pretty poor job of it most of the time. What and did nobody seemed to care whether it really was good or not. Mm -hmm. And how did you change that? Well, I specialized in making the events happen well audio-wise, making sure that people are on microphone, explaining stuff to them, and just running around and doing that, rather than being an installer who, oh yeah, there's the microphone, and that's it. Mm -hmm which is what usually used to happen that I saw. I was around uh, Boston Gardens and other events and stuff that went on and uh, saw that it was pretty poor most of the time. Did you do anything special for Woodstock? Yeah, I designed special speakers for the upper areas and uh, the budget was limited. And uh, so we went back and built the speakers for the area that we were going into. What was it in particular about the Woodstock area that you needed to design something unusual? Well, they didn't have enough budget to go into delay systems. They were like eight or nine thousand dollars a piece for a delay tape recorder where you run it into <coughs> record it and then play it back when the sound would get so if you had multiple speakers from the stage going out to the all the way to the, you know, three quarters of the way back on the audience, which you might see today. Oh, because the sound travels at a certain speed and you need right. to... Reinforce it as it dissipates oh, really? itself rather than try to blast it out. Right, right. You don't 
I mean, all the way, which is really <laughs> the average person doesn't think about that at all, right? Right. And, and go ahead. In making it happen well, because all the big ballrooms and stuff, I got involved, thought about the idea of doing that because of, I did a lot of roller skating when I was studying radio, television, electronics. Just personally. Right. You just thought, you liked to roller skate in the rinks. Yeah. So how did well, that? Well, no, I fell. I was harassed because I couldn't skate very well. By my, I went jump from the eighth grade into the tenth, and I was harassed that I couldn't skate very well. Just, <laughs> it just happened that I could. I happened to be my bench buddy, bench mate, uh, went roller skating and had a spare, spare set of skates. Uh, went to a place called the Ballaroo in Mystic Avenue in Medford. And uh, my fellow students harassed me that I couldn't skate very well. And I'll show you, but I can do that. Mm -hmm. So how does the this, this skating connection mix with Woodstock? How does that connect it? Well, it connects to the fact that I discovered this area that wasn't being tackled very well. So the skating because rinks had music, but the music was the mu well, well, they had two systems. They had this record playing system, which sucked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they had a, an incredibly good organ system. Mm -hmm. And uh, I practiced hard and fell in love with music and, and making it happen well. And then they would play the records, and they were terrible. And uh, the idea occurred to me that someone should be, care about making that happen well and, and having big, heavy equipment. Uh, electronics people from World War II had nothing to do after the war, so they started building home stereo systems, and that whole thing started to pick up. And then I got the ideas going into something like Woodstock or any big event and doing the audio well and make it sound like the great organ that was I used to skate to. Right, right. And that's how it got tied into me and how and I went out and tried to procure that work of anything that I heard was happening from I did Johnson's inauguration. I mean any any President event. Johnson, right. Right. Yeah. Yep. John, you're uh, somewhat of a historian now and an expert am. on Bill. Can you, can you give us a little perspective on, on Bill's career? Most definitely. Um, you know, first off, I'd like to make one thing clear. Um, you know, so much of the focus regarding Bill's career is on Woodstock, but it really shouldn't be. Woodstock is a good point to make because it is Bill's culminating performance. And it really was a culminating performance for, in a societal way, in a public way, a political way, for many things. I mean, a lot was happening, the Vietnam War, uh, uh, so to speak. I mean, these festivals were really a, uh, a, a social response to what was happening at the day. Um, but to, to, to isolate that to the only thing that Bill had done is really, uh, it kind of, uh, it takes away from the, the grandiose uh, landscape of what Bill was involved in. It's really a mammoth, mammoth thing. And if we transport ourselves back to a time uh, where your average um, uh, a person would go to a community event or a, um, uh, a fair, um, uh, a church event, what was happening audio with, with audio was just basic, just basic horns, uh, uh, public address horns with uh, a cluster of horns or just an installment that really wouldn't or didn't service uh, music. Uh, it was more of an, uh, an oral thing, it was orally driven. Uh, so, you know, 
because I've studied Bill's life, really, from a, a young age, I've interviewed family, uh, colleagues, uh, professionals in the, in the business with the, within the evolution of live sound. Um, this troubled Bill, um, you know, at a young age. You know, he was a, a technical person. He was he's what he considered himself to be a gearhead. And at a very young age, you know, at uh, nine years old, uh, maybe even younger, he was fixing television, the neighbor's television sets with his tube caddy. Uh, fixing the uh, radio the cl in the classroom for the for the nuns. Bill went to Catholic school, um, so the stories behind all this, which lead him up to Woodstock. So, uh, the how I how I kind of simplify all this to those who might not understand, because I don't want to alienate an audience here. This 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 film is for not only uh, people who are in the audio business, but also for people who. Uh, are just interested in a good American story about a very unique subject, which is which is uh, sound reinforcement and the sound the sound man. Um, you know, Bill's um, career is expansive. So, I I could I computed or equate it to uh, Forrest Gump, uh, the 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 movie. And since we're on a show about about films. Bill was truly the Forrest Gump of sound. He was at some of the most, <laughs> and I don't mean that in any way. Forrest Gump was a very uh, complex character, and the story behind Forrest Gump was very complex. Bill was at uh, some of the most significant American musical historic events of our, of, in American history during a, 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 a passionate time, uh, during a, a volcanic time. Uh, you know, we see Bill at uh, Newport in 1965 with Bob Dylan. Well, let me ask you about, let me, go ahead. let's have sure. Bill tell that story. Sure. All right, so you're um, at, at the Newport Folk Festival, 1965, and Bob Dylan comes out with an electric guitar. Can you tell me that story? Well, and, and he, it wasn't the electric guitar that was the thing, the, the idea that he was playing it distorted-wise. Now, is the distortion happening from your sound system or from his guitar? And then if you played it too loud, was it going to do damage to the speaker sound system because everything was maxed out to get to the back of the house? And, and it's, the an acoustic, very, it's an acoustic it environment. This yeah, is a it doesn't festival. sound very pleasant at all. It sounds pretty distorted. And the audience it is was, was rioting. Uh, well, they weren't rioting. <laughs> it was the people that didn't like, Pete Seeger and people like that didn't like the idea of distortion being part of his story. Folk festival. Yeah, right. These were purists. They were folk oh, yeah. purists at that time. Right. Yeah. And most of the people around the folk festival were. So all of a sudden, this <laughs> was happening. <laughs> and then, so there was a fight between Peter Yarrow and uh, the, people, the powers that were on the Newport Folk Foundation, which conducted the, the event. So there was a lot of... Were you prepared for this as, as the... Uh the sound engineer? Did you re did you know that that uh, Dylan was going to do this? No, it was just <laughs> do it. You know, there's right. a movie called Festival, which is directed by Murray Lerner, mm -hmm. and um, about 40, 44 minutes into the movie, we can see Bill, a young Bill Hanley, on stage uh, with Pete Yarrow and Bob Dylan during a, I guess what you would consider well, a sound a, check. That, that wasn't the earlier. That was that was a later. When he was later, when he was there, that wasn't the first time. The first that was, time okay. it happened. That it happened with the, uh, as I remember it, it happened with the stage when we were down there. Mm -hmm. It happened with the stage opposite the uh, tennis courts, where the first festival happened, which was with Freebity Park. Right. Yeah. Well, Bill, let me ask you this for people who don't know. 
I mean, you go to a concert, and there's the sound engineer in the back of a concert with an enormous board doing things that nobody has any idea what you're doing. What are you, what are you doing with that board when you're out there? Well, you're trying to get a balance in what, of the story that's being told with the music, usually, or what's the principal instrument that's happening, and try to get that a little bit above the, the other instruments that are going, the accompanying instruments. And then you're watching those levels, and then you equalize the microphone so they don't pick up so much of the floor noise and other stuff that's going on, and then you can regulate that through the mixing console. So in a typical concert today, like a Rolling Stones concert, how many microphones might there actually be that, you, that you're controlling at any one point? Well, it can be, you know, 10, 20, 30. Wow. So you're miking the voices of, of all the singers? Principal and then all the instruments and all everything that's going on that's yep. important musically that's happening. So you're controlling the sounds that are coming into that board, the, the inputs from the microphones, but you also must be controlling the outputs that are going to all the speakers that you've got in the stadium. Right. And Correct. do you do anything in particular with those speakers actively during a concert, or is that set beforehand? Well, most of it's set be beforehand, that the levels are appropriate for the, how close people are for the loudspeaker, to the loudspeaker. That brings up another story that I wanted you to tell me about, which was you um, were the sound engineer for the second Beatles tour in the United States. Is third, that right? Third, the, the third. 66 tour. Yep. And the story is that the, at this point, the young girls were screaming so loud that, and I've heard the albums, you can barely hear anything. What was your feelings about that? Well, no one prepared me for it. <laughs> <laughs> no one, pre no one prepared the sound guy before that and before that either. <laughs> Well, I was chasing Sid Bernstein for events in New York City because I was started, you know, uh, I had a place at 888 8th Avenue, and uh, I was chasing people down there to try to get any place I heard there was going to be any big concerts I mm -hmm. chased after. I was trying to get into Roseland to get the sound system for the big bands and make them sound good all over the place, which was part of my dance experience where I went into ballroom dancing and the the ballrooms had one microphone on the stage, and that was it wow. for Tommy Dorsey and stuff like that. Right, so they'd mic the singer, but the band would, generally the right. band would be loud enough you didn't right. really need um, reinforcement, right? Well, not to my liking. Yeah, mm -hmm. that was the theory, I, get, I guess. I get trained, as I started to tell you before, was mm -hmm. from a very good rink organist with a fabulous system and fabulous acoustics, which didn't happen hardly any place else. So you knew what it could sound like, and you wanted That's to right. make that happen That's elsewhere. right. Yeah. There you go. And I listened to the new, new high-fidelity sound systems that were being sold, and I related all that and brought it back in the, in the terrible record system that they would play at the roller skating rink. Mm -hmm. And then I had went into Boston Gardens and watched the shows there, and I got my teacher was and. Uh, was very friendly with a guy named Bonnie Noonan, who was the electrician at the garden. So now I had free access. And then I met John Kiley, and then I get in, who was the organist there. And so getting back to the Beatles right. tour. The Beatles. I mean, were you pulling your hair out when you couldn't, you couldn't hear the music? How the you, what heck could you pull out? <laughs> <laughs> we had mercury vapor rectifiers and the amplifiers, and you can see them pulsating bright blue and not, and I knew that it was working. Mm -hmm. but. I was in the in the uh, the first base dugout. It's referred to as a rocket ship taking off. 
I, we interviewed the, 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 the sound. The sound, yes, yeah. yeah. We uh, had a shoot with uh, Barry uh, and the Remains. They played at the Brighton Music Hall last winter. And um, the Remains were the uh, opening act uh, amongst two other acts with the Beatles on that tour. Um, the Remains management were friends with Bill from Newport. And uh, this is how this, you know, one of the connections was made. So when the Beatles realized how, how well the sound system sounded for the Remains, um, Brian Epstein was interested in this. This was the Beatles manager and then said, hey, let's bring Bill Hanley on for at least nine or ten of these dates of the 66 tour. Um, some, no, Bill wasn't on the entire tour because uh, the, the, the last date was in Candlestick Park uh, in San Francisco, but uh, he was on for a good portion. And, and there, there are articles uh, uh, on how well some of the dates did sound. I mean, but I think no matter what you did and what sort of equipment you had, you would have it would have been a challenge to uh, <laughs> to hear anything. Well, the minute the girls are in, involved in it and then the girl next to it gets excited and starts screaming, then this girl to get involved in it starts screaming too, then she can't hear, none of them hear any of the, the, each other screaming. No. Right, right. And it happens to be that, that Shea Stadium is a circular stadium and everybody, all the energy was concentrated to the center of the stadium where they were set up on second base. And uh, I, it was just a roar. <laughs> <laughs> so the Beatles were used to playing through house public address systems of these stadiums anyway. So I think, if anything, your equipment sounded probably as good as what they had at the time, you know. But well, it sounded uh, great at the time yeah. because you no, know, it's they didn't have anything like I had. Yeah, there was nothing like it. Right. So they had they weren't bringing a lot of this engineering was early, done early at the talkies in the '30s, late '30s with uh, Western Electric and then Alltech. Mm -hmm. So these, this was movie technology? Sound technology, yeah, the, the basic hmm. quality. The money was there, and Hollywood was trying to produce better films with good audio. Voice of the theater speakers played an important role in the development of early life. Uh, so these are the speakers that are used in the theaters when you're watching the film. They were right. trying to develop right. They'd sit behind They'd the screen. They'd have 2,000 people sitting there, yeah. and they would have three and 400 pound loud speaker cabinets. Mm -hmm. So and you were I, also there during the transition between into rock and roll, right? Oh yeah. Right. And what was your what was your personal feeling about that? What what kind of music do you like in particular? Do you have a favorite? Yeah, style? big band, big and band. jazz. Yeah. So when Duke Ellington, Count Basie, the best, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So when it transferred from the big bands, basically died, and rock and roll came in. What was your personal feeling about that? I don't know, I never thought about it. Uh, I was doing my work then, not, I'm a dancer. Ballroom dancing, all roller dance and whatever, so I. Um, Bill was, was there to do a job. Was, <laughs> my job was to bring the information that was going on, <laughs> on the stage out to the masses. No matter out to what. the very end. Mm -hmm. and that's, that was my work and that's what I saw being heavily neglected. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Bill started at Newport uh, Jazz in around 57, 58. With George Wee. With George Wee, 57, 58, 59. I mean, you were... You, were, you were, did the uh, first show at, with, uh, well, it did George Shearing at the Bradford Roof. Bradford Roof, right. George. The story Bill. was going on. They had a lot of trouble with sound with someone in from, where were they from? Uh, Miles Rosenthal? No. He, he brought in some good equipment, but he didn't give a rat's ass about the 
you, the whole thing. He just said he could put good sound out there, brought in some big speakers, and it was okay. Yeah. I walked in, and next thing you know, I'm running the console and in a little booth. So what was your relationship with George Ween? Well, I had got wind that they were having sound problems. Mm -hmm. and, Right, yep. it was in the papers that they, the guy had set the speakers up in such a way that a lot of the stuff they, facing the concrete grandstand at, at Freebie Park, and the sound was bouncing on it back at the stage, and the echoing and stuff that was going on in the stadium was driving everybody crazy. So, Newport had several locations before it settled to where it is now. At Fort Adams. At Fort Adams, yeah. yeah prior to that. So, and I guess my point was is going back to the this movement from rock and roll. Jazz really plays a, a significant role in the evolution of the festival leading up to the rock festival, mm -hmm. because now we see we're seeing large, larger and larger gatherings, which which uh, created a greater need for services like Bill. So. While Bill was, the, the Newport was really like Bill's laboratory, his, his training camp. This is where he could try out his new ideas uh, for sound development, uh, placement of speakers. Literally, he was, he was, and I have record of this, of George Wien talking about Bill trying out different things. And, you know, George was a little difficult to work with in that because he didn't really get it. Bill thought outside of the box. And this was a new thing. You know, Bill had to spend much of his career convincing people that his way and his sound applications was better. You'd be able to hear it better. It, it was it was audible. It was it was clarity. You know, people. You know, these promoters, managers, uh, festival organizers, didn't really want to shell out the cash. I mean, the sound man was the low, bottom of the totem pole. You really Bill spent a lot of his career convincing people and trying to get paid for his services. Right. He created the industry. You know, in a lot of ways. Pioneers. So, exactly. What happens to pioneers, Bill? You get arrows in the back. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly. I, Andrew Carnegie said that. No, he said pioneering don't pay. That's what Carnegie said. Did no, he, he say? Did, he said it. That's how he oh, said okay. it. All right. You're absolutely right. Mm. And they get a lot of arrows in the back because everybody discovers that something is happening that's interesting, and then everybody jumps on board. Right. And if well, you're not ready for that. And the sound engineer is basically the invisible role anyway, right? You never, you know, you never hear about this. Right, we're, he's we're, supposed to be invisible. That's what the whole, the object, you know, was to not be not, to not supposed to be there. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, let me ask you this. Were there any uh, famous name performers that really appreciated this, the audio engineer? Was there any time that somebody... Well, Peter Yarrow, uh, there was a bunch of people. Well, there was tons, George, yeah. yeah. Jesse very... Colin Young from the Youngbloods. I mean, we've interviewed quite a few that um, a, a lot of times um, the musician, there wasn't, you know, Bill wasn't a groupie, so he wasn't there to hang out with the, with the bands. Uh, but um, no musician either, so. Right. So, um, you know, there, it took a, probably a unique situation for uh, the band to realize the sound. Like, we interviewed the Cowsills, two members of the Cowsills. And they remember uh, that shift. So we're talking about a shift from poor audio to this just avalanche of fresh, new sounding uh, uh, or new sounds coming from the stage. And um, you know, I just use an example: the Cowsills. You know, they were using uh, um, uh, Shore equipment, um, the Shore um, vocal, masters. vocal masters. And they just remember Bill coming in pulling in his truck, unloading this equipment, and they were like, holy cow. This is a vocal group. I mean, you must have had several uh, microphones on stage for these guys. Yeah, a bunch they, of microphones. Yeah, Everybody yeah. had a microphone. That yeah. was part of the idea. We're using electronic right. mixing rather than acoustic mixing. Correct. And I, the, the change was the 400-pound loudspeaker cabinets 
compared to toys and bringing the equipment that was behind these big screens into the concert marketplace, which never happened before. Well, I assume for the musicians as well, they're on stage, they're performing, they're not hearing what the audience is hearing, so it's hard for them to know the quality of your work. Well, that's, that's until the right. monitor, Until the stage monitor comes into play, Which, and then, then the bands are able to hear themselves, and th that was a big problem prior to that. And you were instrumental in the design of stage monitors, right? Wasn't that right. one of your innovations? Neil Young with the... Uh, Buffalo Springfield. Buffalo Springfield, yeah. They had rented the sound system from me, and I went out to California to see for something or other, and then dropped in to see how they were doing in their rehearsal hall. And I said, what do you need the sound system here for? We can't hear each other. Oh. So it happened that I had a 45-degree angle cut in the back of the cabinets of these things in a bolded horn, and I took the speaker cabinet and put it right behind the microphone and faced it back into the, the rear of the microphone, where it's, it's a unidirectional microphone, so it had signal rejection. rejection. Otherwise, just to go into feedback all the time, cheap microphones and Well, I assume most stuff. of our viewers, they go to a concert and they see speakers facing the Performer. musician, and they must wonder, why, why are the speakers in the wrong direction? <laughs> you know? So what exactly is the monitor doing? What's the purpose? The purpose of the monitor is so that I can hear your voice over the ambient noise level of the amplifier. See, when I refer to it as the fact that the musician, when the Beatles happened, they, the musicians plugged into Niagara Falls for power and getting more and more level. Well, as it gets, the ambient noise picks up, then it's harder for you to hear me and me to hear you. So when you say ambient noise, what are you referring to? All the noise around, mm -hmm. the air, from the amplifiers, any noise that's happening that isn't in the principal information thing that we transmit information from one another on mouths. So those big speakers on stage are making noise. From their instruments, right. They're making, they're amplifying their instruments mm -hmm. for everybody to hear, supposedly. Yet, then they get to the point where they can't hear each other. Mm -hmm. So therefore, then those speakers in the stage, the footlight, micro footlights, stage monitors, blast the sound straight back. And are those monitors, to, the sound from those monitors, is that the mixed sound of the entire thing, or just? It could, be, it could be both. It was yeah. originally a mixed sound, because originally they put speakers way off to the sides so they wouldn't get feedback, like Frank Sinatra would travel with a pair of speakers and they would face them into the center. But they were far away, and the ambient noise level wasn't big at the time. When the, they plugged into Niagara Falls and Dylan came in and this whole thing started to snowball. Then the, um, the uh, energy, sound energy that's being created on the stage got so intense that now you and I couldn't carry on a conversation. Right. So therefore you would get a close talking microphone and you would have one, I would have one, then your speaker could get, got, then it got to the point where your loudspeaker only picked up my voice and vice versa. My loudspeaker would pick up your voice, so you would shout into it. <laughs> and you would sing into it, like for Janice, and I did Janice's work for a long time. I used to drive her back and forth to the Chelsea Hotel. Well, tell me about Janice Joplin, then. Oh, she was a wonderful was she person. Like? She was wonderful. Mm -hmm. She was playing at the cafe, go-go, and I got a call on the phone when I was looking and trying to get into Roseland and then trying to get into the Village Theater in Second Avenue, which later became the Fillmore, which we installed a permanent system in. And, but anyways, Janice was a 
terrific person. And I was supposed to go out with a new band when she overdid it. Shame. We interviewed um, Sam Andrew, who is the guitarist for Big Brother and the Holding Company. So he, he gave us some great reflections uh, on the time, the you know, sound quality of the time. You also did, um, you designed the studio for Jimi Hendrix? No, I didn't design that. I, I helped. Bill's I, worked with, worked with Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, I worked with him yeah. a lot on the big events. Bill, really Bill mostly guy. worked with everybody in the day. Yeah. I mean, well, Hendrix was a perfectionist, and the music was very, the, the quality of the music was very important to Hendrix. Tell me a little bit about that and what the sort of things that he wanted and what he had. You to know, do. He, at that time, they were just starting to get more involved in what was going on because they started spending more time in the theater, in the uh, in the in the theater, in the uh, sound studio, doing recording, but they hadn't brought that to the concert marketplace, yet that sort of grew in mm. to the Beach Boys and stuff like that as it sort of mushroomed together. And uh, I'm just a wonderful guy, I, I can say. Yeah. And I didn't spend any time in the studio. I know the guy that built that studio for him, Electric Ladyland. Eddie Kramer? No, Eddie Kramer did Oh, wasn't he that. working at? Uh... He, he helped work on it. Eddie Kramer showed up. The first time I met Eddie Kramer was uh, later on at uh, Woodstock. Okay. And he, Warner Brothers said they wanted to have someone that they can control, and uh, Lee Osborne did, was the master recordist. And I designed and laid the system out, and then he ran it. And then Eddie Kramer just helped with his, with whatnot. Well, Hendrix was so much about feedback and, and doing things with his guitar that nobody had done before. Right. Did you have any, was that, um, particularly difficult for you to work with, or was it simply another input? Simply another input. Mm -hmm. He didn't utilize the sound system for uh, any of his effects. Right, so he was using audio electronics to distort his instrument, but you were then taking that and... Right, I would get it off of his instrument amplifier, yeah. which is why he needed the heavy-duty monitor system. Mm -hmm. All of them needed it at that time. Mm -hmm. You also did a lot of work with the Beach Boys. Tell me about what you do with the Beach Boys. Well, <laughs> well, you have to remember, um, the Beatles tour of 66 and the Beach Boys tour were simultaneous at the time, so, um, or around the same time. And at they that were, point, when did, he go well, on, when did the Beach Boys go on tour? Well, Terry, your brother, was on tour with the Beach Boys. With Brian Wilson. Correct. And, and you, were do, you were handling the, uh, the, uh, the Beatles tour. And this is a great point, because this is, you know, this is the beginning somewhat of, the tour, of touring, actually taking equipment and going on the road with bands, which really didn't happen a lot. Bands would just show up and use whatever was right. there. So that's another development in the industry at that point. Now you see the five semi-tractor jailers Correct. following the Rolling Stones e down the road. Exactly. Yeah. And the, five. Yeah, right. <laughs> More than that. <laughs> five. But Bill, had, at that time, sorry to interrupt, but Bill at that time had the most equipment. He had the largest cache of audio equipment at the time. He had the, uh, uh, the ability to facilitate these events at the time. Therefore, he was able to handle multiple tours and multiple events at one time. So, you know, this is 1966, you know, and then moving on, Bill and the Hanley Sound entity became more well-known, and, and people referred to them for uh, their work because of, because of reputation, because of their uh, stability. Uh, we could rely on this. Um, so it's really uh, the early, early days of concert sound, you know, live concert sound. It's amazing. Well, I was the experienced guy from Newport. Mm -hmm. for the jazz festival and then worked my way. With, I did the, the Pleasure Island Festival. But that would be surprising to me. It would seem that 
rock and roll musicians would say, oh, you're the jazz guy. We don't need the jazz guy. We need the rock and roll guy. Was there that kind of barrier for you? No. no they didn't know the difference. I, they didn't care. At the time, time frame, there wasn't any other. Mm -hmm. There wasn't right, they anybody. They had to take the jazz guy. Because there weren't well, any no rock one, and roll. No one, they didn't here. bother. There was never, that never came up. Yeah. The, the epiphany of, from the musician realizing wow, we sound better using this equipment, didn't happen until, you know, 67, 68, 69, when riders came in to play and bands started writing in, we demand this sort of sound to be uh, provided at our venues. Riders, you're just talking about legal contracts. Legal contracts between the promoter, the venue, and what other entities uh, in relationship with the band. And, you know, the Hanley Sound crew had uh, Judy Bernstein-Cohen, who was the longtime manager of Hanley Sound, had a, um, uh, a distinct influence in that uh, development in uh, incorporating uh, Hanley Sound to many of the writers in these bands at the time for quality sound. Right. So, Bill, you're still, you're still doing some work in the industry. Tell me about, bring it up to the, the present. What, what is audio, um, you say that it's uh, sound enhancement. What does that feel sound like? Sound reinforcement. Sound reinforcement. What is that like today? What is, uh, say, a, well, a rock Rolling people, Stone, what do they do? Oh, right, Rolling Stone thing, it's, it's pretty crazy. Uh, jazz thing, I'm doing jazz, and they don't really much, it's, it's difficult sometimes with jazz people. Right. They don't do sound checks. Rock and roll people do sound checks, and they're really critical, that ear of, of spending, that spending the time in the studio. Uh, they will do it. They will, they will go up before the set happens at jazz, you can't get the musicians. Well, there's not the money. money. There's not the size of the audience. And, but so, so just uh, walk us through briefly what the sound engineering would be like on, a, say, a Rolling Stones tour. Oh, it's... How many engineers would they have? How much equipment oh, do they have? What are they trying to do? Tons. Tons of equipment. Yeah. And, and the main purpose of that is just to get enough sound into the audience that everyone can hear. Right, very well, and get effects and whatever they're, whatever they're trying to do. And they're mostly trying to make, it seems to me, that what a band like that is trying to do is create a facsimile of the sound that you hear on the album. When you go to a big concert, you kind of want to hear, you want to, you want you want to sound record, somewhat right. like what you got on the record, which must be very difficult because it's, so, it's not a studio. Right, it's not controlled and all this happens at once. Everything is rushed together. Yeah, yeah. And uh, depending, you know, doing a... a group like that, then the, man, the engineer that's normally involved with them today is one that lives with the problem every day, city to city to city, and then they either uh, have three or four sound systems and stage systems that, uh, what do they call them, uh, one in front of the other. Mm -hmm. Hopscotching? Uh, hopscotch, yeah. Yeah, yeah, wow. Like at the U2 concerts and stuff. And mm -hmm. That was a hundred and something tractor trailers in the U2. hundred tractor trailers. Right. And how much of that would Three be? Three setups. And is that prim, how much would that would uh, be involved in the audio as opposed to say the staging and the? the you know, I didn't. I. It, you don't have an idea. Yeah. A lot it's of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the same stuff brought into place and. and Bill, Bill, Bill's uh, involvement with the, within the development of this really he really churned the waters for what we see today. I mean, when we look when you go to a, a contemporary concert or event or festival. Uh, you can make distinct connections to what was Bill, what Bill was doing mm -hmm. back during the golden age 
of rock and pop festivals. That real that that time, that chunk of time where there was a festival every week, basically, you know. Um, and now it is a uh, a very efficient, very streamlined, well packaged process. Um, Could you ever have envisioned this when you were doing the sound for Woodstock? Say, do you see what has happened today? No, because we work with most of the acts all over the place, around the country. And then they became, the acts became so big that two or three acts on a stage, it became that rather than everybody coming to one festival and right. playing 20 hours a day. If we were to go back to Woodstock and, and be at the Woodstock concert today, would the sound sound terrible to us? It wouldn't be loud enough. Mm -hmm. And they would spend a lot more money. The budget would, uh, is, the force would be there to, to do it. Yeah. So a lot of people in Woodstock Pressure. actually couldn't hear much of the music. Well, the people could hear all the way back. That's, that was the special speakers I mm -hmm. built for that. Mm -hmm. Based on my it, research, everybody could hear well. I mean, yeah. I've interviewed quite a bit of folks that were involved, mostly everybody that's been involved in, within the development of, of Woodstock or the facilitation of just, you know, not only the sound, but the staging and also uh, people in the audience. I've interviewed Woodstock uh, attendees. Good thing, because so much of it was a disaster, right? the weather <laughs> well, and all. At least they could hear. Right. Weather, yeah. If you that's were sitting right. in, the, in the funnel, which is the way I designed it, mm -hmm. you could hear about four, five, six, seven hundred feet away. Mm -hmm. Pretty good if no one was making a lot of noise around you. Right. Well, John, we should talk the about the- fidelity was good. We should talk sure. about the film. Yeah, sure. So what is your background, John? Uh, well, my background uh, education-wise, I, um, I studied uh, fine art and illustration at the Art Institute of Boston. I was a commercial illustrator for a number of years, and then I uh, got into graphic design and then uh, continued my studies into, um, into education. Um, I studied uh, master's in education at Endicott College. And uh, now I'm uh, at Franklin Pierce University and um, I'm studying um, leadership studies within a doctorate program there. And, that, and I bring that up just because this is how I, I got involved in this project, is through my, uh, through my thesis, my research thesis and dissertation on and, Bill's oral history. And what's the name of the film about Bill? The name of the film is called The Last Seat in the House. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is a uh, derivative of Bill Hanley's philosophy with all of his, um, uh, or his theories or philosophies with all the projects he's done, which is to uh, make sure that there's absolutely no discrimination or no um, split uh, in clarity or audibility from the guy sitting in the front all the way to the back. These are equal members at an event and that that's, that was Bill's modus, modus operandi. So well, I thought it was a fitting. For a guy usually gets the cheap seats, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's cut to the trailer. We'll watch the trailer for a minute, and then okay. we can talk a little bit more about the film. Okay, great. The Last Seat in the House is an amazing story about the life of Bill Hanley, sound engineer pioneer of Medford, Massachusetts. Bill changed the way we listen to live outdoor concert sound starting an industry in the 1950s. Bill created sound systems to support the growing need of clarity in sound at large festival events. These were highly historic events, like the Woodstock 69 Festival, inaugurations of presidents, and several anti-war demonstrations, just to name a few. I've been working on this project for a year now, and there's still so much more to tell. Bill's goal was to empower people through clarity and sound, and his modus operandi was that the last person in the very last seat of the house could hear as well as the person sitting in the front. Please take part in our film. I would appreciate it, and so would Bill Hanley. Right, Bill? Right. 
Enjoy the trailer and thank you for your support. For more information, you can visit www.thelastseatinthehouse.com. Thank you, Bill. You're welcome. And thank you. Hey, I'm Matt. Welcome. We have ways to make you welcome. Welcome to the last seat in the house. everybody at the back of the house should hear it as well as as well as the people in the front of the house that's what we tried and did design to do as best we could in some pretty nasty environments When I came up to Newport for the first time, we weren't getting the kind of subtleties I wanted out of the, the sound. And then I found out later on it got much better. And a man named Bill Hanley uh, was responsible for uh, getting some of these problems ironed out. The outdoor sound was in a very pioneering stage. And the most adventurous guy I knew with sound was Bill Hanley. And he understood what we were looking for, and he gave us the best he had. And, and uh, it was the beginning of it all, because Hanley was the pioneer. there were massive pop festivals on the Isle of Wight in England, near Los Angeles, near Atlanta, Bethel, New York, and in Louisville, Texas. Hard rock fans and hippies in general poured into the grounds from just about everywhere. It was like a, a, a showing of kindred spirit. Uh, we're going to be part of this big change because it's not been great. Not only would it have been a complete disaster for the audience and bad vibes, but you wouldn't have been able to communicate to the audience medical necessities, 
announcements. What I took away from it was, was someone who really cared about the experience of the audience um, and wanted to give them as good an experience as he could. And that's what drove him. He, he, did, he was there with the firstest, with the mostest, with the bestest. And we revere him as such. Another tour, come on, let's go. To the last seat in the house, it's the first place you find me. Where are you? want to hear a little more, you're going to have to scream for it. So uh, where you're still in the principle of photography at this point? Oh, definitely. Uh, so, well, because this is a, a, for my dissertation, I'm right now, currently, I'm involved, involved in writing. The writing portion of this is, is the most detailed portion of this, and that really supports the narration, the narrative of the film. The film obviously can only be so long, but the book portion, which I hope to get published, uh, will be the, 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 the more detail, the real, the meat, the, the, the exact types of equipment, the, how Bill and the Hanley crew got to Woodstock, where, you know, what festival came after Woodstock. I'll highlight certain festivals based on the research I've done. Um, you know, we'll talk about Bill's, where Bill came from, you know, Medford, Massachusetts, um, Hanley Square, and, and just, the, just the kind of progression of his life and, and, and the social and uh, political stuff that was happening around him, you know. It's really uh, interesting stuff, so. And, and the film is, it's, 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 a, it's a human piece, you know. It's not a geek film or uh, 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 something that's isolated to audio files. Audio files will find it interesting, and there will be information in there that they never realized. But uh, at the same time, it's, uh, I, I, you know, I like to say that I didn't come into this being a filmmaker. I came into it as a researcher and as an artist uh, and someone who was studying someone's life. I realized only after that this story needed to be told visually, and it just made perfect sense. And Bill's relationship with so many important people in the business, it would have been a crime not to have filmed this uh, project. But it must so, be difficult making yeah. a film about this. First of all, yep. Bill's a sound engineer. Yep. You don't usually get very much, many pictures of the sound engineer in That's any right. concert movie. That's right. It's also uh, a movie about famous music, which is enormously expensive, yep. so you probably can't have very much of the music in there. That's right. Um, it, it's got to be a difficult film to make because yep. you don't have that many resources except the interviews. Correct. So, uh, and I can answer those questions. Um, so first off, finding footage of Bill. First thing I did, first thing I tackled to do is I need to find images of Bill. So one of my tactics was, is I searched YouTube. YouTube is uh, and provides an avalanche of eight millimeter footage of stuff. There's so much stuff out there. Um, so I ran a search, simple search, festivals, you know, okay, Texas Pop comes up, uh, Woodstock, my journey uh, at Woodstock as a 15-year-old kid, I contacted all these folks, I sent out a kind of a canned email, and you'd be amazed at the responses I got. I have so much B-roll footage of festivals, of individual experiences at festivals, so I handled that. So what about Bill? So I sent out a message to people in the industry, here and there, made phone calls, this and that, 
And um, there was one festival in Puerto Rico called the Mare Soul Festival, and Alex Cooley was the promoter. He promoted three or four of uh, some of the most significant festivals in Bill's career. And uh, I talked to the photographer there, and he had footage of Bill's Hanley soundtrack. So that's one tackle. Then there's the uh, movie uh, festival, Murray Lerner. I contacted Murray Lerner. There's about three seconds of Bill on stage in that. Um, I just recently found footage of Bill at Woodstock at the, um, uh, at the sound mixing console. And um, I have two canisters that I just had digitized of Bill at the um, moratorium of the anti-Vietnam War moratorium in Washington in 1970, May 9th, 1970. And there he is, Bill's unloading the truck, the, the, the yellow bird uh, tractor truck, Kenworth uh, uh, tractor trailer, and unloading the stuff and putting it, I mean, it's, it's a gift, you know? So a lot of stuff has really fallen into place for me. So now the music portion, yeah, first thing, like what am I gonna do? I, you know, I don't have uh, a billion dollars to, to, to pay Warner Brothers for, for not only footage, but the, the, the Hendrix uh, Institute or the Hendrix Corporation or this and that. So um, fortunately, I'm a musician, and I have a lot of musician friends. I, I run a small folk festival in Salem. I've been doing that for about three years. 200 people, very small. Uh, and I reached out to my friends. I said, hey, I want to write some music for this thing, and uh, help me with it. And, I have, I have about four or five songs already written for the project. One very interesting thing happened. Um, David Marks, he's a South African man, and he worked for Hanley Sound in 1969. Bill met um, David at Newport, and David was in the U.S. Uh, during the, folk the days of the folk revival because he was uh, uh, celebrating his success of a song that he wrote called Master Jack, which uh, was recorded by Four Jacks and a Jill. And uh, we acquired uh, um, or secured that song for the project as well. And it, fit, it fits in perfectly. It's part of the story. And, um, you know, it just think good things have happened for this project, for a little film that has a big story, you know? Yeah. When do you think it might be finished? Uh, well, I'm, I'm shooting for, um, no pun intended, for uh, September 2013. Uh, I, will have to I will have to submit a 30-minute short with my uh, written dissertation. But after that is completed, uh, the, the story will get more bigger and uh, um, it'll be, that process will be more um, developed. You know, the film will just get built, built out from that. So there'll be m many versions. Bill, what are you doing today? Not today, today, but. <laughs> <laughs> We're sitting right here. You're still working, right? <laughs> you work in the jazz festival, uh, the jazz festival, the jazz show tonight at Jocko's Jazz in the film. And Friday we'll be at the, uh, Greater Boston Swing. Swing dance, yeah, yeah. Putting a sound system in there for that. No, no and plans to retire. None. No, are you kidding? I'm me? Working on the rooftop. <laughs> Bill will never retire. Yeah, you, you you mentioned before the interview that you were working on some equipment, building more equipment. What, can you tell me? A roof structure. About that? Roof structure. That would unfold to go with the stage that we un that we made. When I thought there would be more festivals, and then it turned into. A, there was a, the government attacked the festival marketplace. How so? How so? <laughs> How so? <coughs> well, they wouldn't allow them to collect any money at Mari Soul. They canceled, uh, well, they tried to cancel Woodstock, if you remember back. They stopped it from happening in Walk Hill. There was a whole anti-government thing went down in the festivals. Bill had been arrested a couple times at some of these festivals and these events. Outer Ridge? 
well, went to were, jail at Powder Ridge. You were involved in the uh, peace movement, right? Right. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And uh, they, uh, there was a lot of paranoia about the kids getting together and saying, we don't want to fight anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, so you're saying today there's still government intervention in the music? No, it happened at the time where I, I went into <clears throat> the festival marketplace disappeared and the, the single concert type thing came into being. And you weren't allowed to get many other groups in one place. Mm -hmm. So the thing built up with the Rolling Stones and they just played themselves rather than, they were upset that they didn't play at Woodstock and then did try to do a mess like Altamont because they didn't I didn't get realize it they were upset they didn't get, were they, they weren't invited to Woodstock? They were, but they didn't want to, they wanted a lot of money, I think, and that's what, I don't know why they rejected it at the time, but they, there was talk about them coming and then, excuse me, they never showed. And then you're referring to the yeah. famous California concert where someone was killed by the... Right, the, by the, the Hell's, Hell's Angels. Angels. Right. And, um, were you at that concert? No. No. Good thing. Well, I certainly would have been screaming to the bloody heavens the way they tried to do it. Mm -hmm. Why? What was the problem with it? Well, you don't... You don't the stage was yourself. too low. The stage was too low, right? You don't try to protect yourself with people. You use physical plant to protect yourself. Right, the Hell's Angels were the were right. The, uh, I remember the, the Rolling Stones had hired the Hell's Angels to protect. That's them. right. This yeah. one, someone had a bright idea, and I would have been jumping up and down out of my pants if I ever heard that, <laughs> if I was in front of the happening. But you still see concerts where they have police officers on stage, and sometimes they have to eject overly. You don't see much of it at all. Yeah, anymore. people are more controlled now, and the and the and the concerts they, are way, so much more controlled now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when I. When I first started doing it, we had a security wall that I used to carry around with us to do it in plywood and scaffolding. You can't even and stand on your you... seats anymore at a concert. I mean, yeah. if you think about it, you know, where, where, where we've come, you know. Uh, well, now you, have, now you have a barrier wall that when you stand on it, you have to push your own weight over to get over it. You can't get over the barrier very well at all. And then there's people on the other side of that barrier. Right. And Woodstock was designed with very high to keep the people back so that they could they would move be able to move out because they couldn't see anything if they moved they stood up and you know in front of other people then at the sides the people would chase you down then you still couldn't see if you, you know, off to the side there were 12 foot walls yeah. which I had designed and laid out well so. Bill I'd love to talk to you for hours here this would be great but stuff. I'm afraid yeah. we're running out of time Sure. Bill, it was a pleasure, pleasure. meeting you. you. Nice meeting you, too. And uh, good luck with the rest of your work. Thank you. Keep going. We need Keep people trying. like you. <laughs> Neurotically <laughs> driven. Thank you very much. Thank you Thank very you. much for coming. Thanks. We Thanks. appreciate it. Yeah. Best of luck with your film. Thank you so much. I'm Thank Gino Delgorcio for the Film Connection. Thanks for watching. That everybody at the back of the house should hear it as well as, as, well as the people in the front of the house. That's what we tried and did design to do as best we could in some pretty nasty environments. <laughs>